We'll hear argument next in eBay versus Merck Exchange. Mr. Phillips. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The fundamental question that's posed in this particular case is whether or not the Court of Appeals, by adopting a rule that declares categorically that three out of the four traditional factors for deciding whether or not to grant permanent injunctive relief will be irrebuttably presumed to be satisfied whenever a jury is found that a patent is valid and has been infringed. The rule in the Federal Circuit for at least 20 years has been that if you have validity and infringement decided by the jury, that then there is irrebuttable finding of, of irreparable injury, of inadequate remedy at law, and that the balance of harms decidedly favors the plaintiff, and that the only issue that remains available to the defendant in that circumstance is a heightened scrutiny on the standard of whether or not the, pu- the public interest uh, commands uh, that an injunction be denied in a particular case. And even in that context, the Federal Circuit's rule is extraordinarily stringent, because not just any public interest can, will satisfy, but instead it has to be a public interest that uh, endangers the public health. Is that all in Judge Bryson's decision? I certainly didn't see it there. That, that is precisely that. I think it's the only way to read Judge Bryson's uh, decision, Justice Ginsburg, where the Court says at page 26A that a permanent injunction will issue once infringement and validity have been adjudged, and then say, to be sure, it will not be so to protect the public interest. And we all know the traditional rule with respect to the grant of injunctive relief is that it's a four-factor test. I, I didn't see anything about irrebuttable presumption. Well, the point is that if an injunction follows with a finding of, infring- of, a, of validity and infringement, then that means that there has to be a, there has to be irreparable injury, inadequate remedy at law, and that the balance of hardships has to tilt in, in favor of the plaintiff. And then the only issue that remains is whether or not the public interest justifies not granting an injunction under the circumstances of this case. It seems to me there's no other way to read that. And if you read it in the context of the, of the previous 20 years of decisions from the Federal Circuit, it is absolutely clear. We don't have the opportunity to come back as a defendant in an infringement action and say, Your Honor, in the specific facts of this case, this is someone for whom money damages is a completely adequate remedy. And, and it seems to me quite clear that Section 283 is designed to be exactly the opposite of the way the Federal Circuit has interpreted this, this scheme. Section 283 says explicitly, and this is on page one of the blue brief, district courts, quote, may, not shall, grant injunctions in accordance with principles of equity. And principles of equity, as Justice Story said almost 200 years ago, systematically reject the idea that you will act on a categorical basis in deciding whether or not to grant or withdraw uh, the, the injunctive relief in, in particular circumstances. And to the contrary, you have to look at each specific issue. And in that regard... Uh, well, is, is, is that so with, with, with respect to someone else's uh, use of, of your property? Um, it seems to me very rare where, where someone takes your property that the court wouldn't, uh, uh, wouldn't give you the property back and, and, and simply say, uh, you know, I can think of a few extraordinary examples. You know, somebody uh, makes a statue out of stolen gold, you know, the, the, the old classic, uh, I guess you get the money back. But ordinarily, we're talking about a property right here. And, and, and the property right is, ex- is explicitly 
the right to exclude others from, from use. That, that's what the patent right is. And all he's asking for is give me my property back. Right. And, and Congress already made the, the balance, Justice Scalia, with respect to that, because Congress obviously identified the property right as the right to exclude. And then Congress did not confer upon the district court's un, no discretion to act in, in a situation where the property right has been violated. Instead, Congress expressly adopts in 283 a very broad grant of equitable discretion. To be sure, in the ordinary case, you, you very well may have irreparable injury proved. But the question is, do you, do you eliminate any inquiry and any specific facts of the case and instead and not only presume it, which I think is a mistake, although the district court did that and found that in this case the presumption was rebutted, but to, but to say irrebuttably it's presumed that you have irreparable injury, irrebuttably presume that you don't have an adequate remedy at law, and irrebuttably presume that the balance of equities tilt in favor of the plaintiff. And that, it seems to me, cannot be squared with the language of the statute. And indeed, on that score, the United States sort of magically ends up on our side of the, of the table because the United States says the same thing. There is no way. On uh, Justice Scalia's question, I was trying to think of some, and I, I was trying to think the analogy, might, you might find some analogy in the public utilities field, the, or a Ferris wheel or something. What you want is a person who uses his property, not at all himself, but license the public generally. And now, would a, would a court uh, issue an injunction there? And I, as I think about that, I don't realize I don't know the answer. I don't know of any. I mean, I certainly wouldn't categorically declare that you have to. I guess is the way. Yeah, I that's. What, I mean, that, that's what you're trying to analogize this case to. I guess is a person who licenses others to use his property and never uses it himself. That's precisely what this case is. There, I don't know how courts do normally act in other areas of property law. Well, I don't know that there are a whole lot of them like that. But the one thing that just, I mean, there are two things to think about the property concept in this statute. First of all. Congress does not declare that the property interest here is a real property interest, which traditionally has been protected differently. It's a personal property interest, which is traditionally accorded less protection uh, under this kind of a scheme. And so there — and again, Congress, in any event, struck the balance. It didn't say, as it could have, that there is presumed — there's a presumption that we have an injunction. It didn't say, as it could have, that we shall have a — shall have either a presumption or an injunction in any particular case. And so under the statutory well, scheme here, it seems The exercise of discretion is channeled over time as, as judges apply it in, in similar cases. You're not suggesting that in a typical run-of-the-mind patent case, no special considerations, it would be wrong to say that in those cases you typically would grant an injunction? I think in those cases the irreparable injury and the ad- inadequacy of the remedy at law will be, will be easy to demonstrate as they have been for hundreds of years. The, the fundamental difference, and it's important to have this in mind, the Federal Circuit adopted this rule of law some 20 years ago. That's before the high-tech boom, before the explosion in the number of patents. And so the opportunity to deal with these issues on an individualized basis that might give rise to some kinds of rules that you could, in fact, apply to the generality of cases based on an experience has never been there. We have been dealing with an irrebuttable presumption for 20 years in a way that has, has completely stultified the ability to develop any of those kinds of rules. And what we're asking this Court to do at this point is to say, no, 
Enough is enough. We need to go back to a time where this — go back to the language of the statute, confer the discretion on the district courts. And it's important not just for a case like this one, but it, but it distorts tremendously the settlement value and the process and the relationship between the patent holder and all of the potential licensees. Because we're in a, in a world — and I don't think the Court can ignore this because it's in the amicus briefs — we're in a world where if a patent holder files a lawsuit in Marshall, Texas — no patent has ever been declared invalid in that jurisdiction, and no patent has ever been found not to infringe. And then you take that finding automatically and you turn it into an injunction. Any person who has been threatened under those circumstances and told that we're going to face a lawsuit in Marshall, Texas, is going to have a very different negotiating posture than in a situation That's where a problem with Marshall, Texas, not with the patent law. I mean, maybe, maybe, maybe we should remedy that problem. Well, I, hope I don't do. think we should write, <laughs> write our patent law because we have some uh, uh, renegade jurisdictions. Uh, uh, why, why isn't the, 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 the free market normally uh, adequate to solve any problems you're talking about? Everybody's in this for the money. Nobody's going to hold off uh, 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 giving the license uh, beyond the point where it, where it makes financial sense. Well, I, I can't, why can't we I, let the market take care of the problem? Well, I think the, mar- the market will take care of the problem. The question is, under what standards are you going to apply? Are you going to say that there is no effective check on the jury system, that it goes automatically from a jury's finding to injunctive relief, or are you going to implement it against the backdrop of what Congress specifically provides, which is that the district court should exercise equitable discretion in deciding how best to proceed? One well, of the problems with the district court exercising equitable discretion without a close review by the Federal Circuit is just the thing that the Federal Circuit was created to handle. That is, you get a tremendous disparity among district judges. I don't know that it's only in Marshall, Texas, that you have a tilt in one direction or in the other. So the Federal Circuit is put there, not to say that the district judges have no discretion, but to try to rein it in somewhat so that you won't have wide disparities, which you very well might have if you just say discretion to the district judges and very light review on appeal. But, Justice Ginsburg, the, the problem with that is that that's not the scheme that Congress created with respect to the remedial aspects of, of the patent laws. I mean, it is sure, surely the case that Congress meant as, as substantive patent law is generally enforced and implemented, that the Federal Circuit would play a significant role in ensuring some kind of uniformity. But Congress didn't then go the extra step and say, and when it comes time to decide whether or not injunctive relief ought to be granted, that it will, that we will presume it or that we will deal with it in a categorical way. Congress granted that discretion to the district courts, and with good reason, because I think maybe you exaggerate the, uh, the, the extent of equitable discretion. I mean, it wasn't as though it's just left up to the judge. Seems like a good idea or not a good idea. There were a lot of rules for when, when, when you would give injunctive relief and not. And, and uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm not sure you're going to get into the kind of uh, wide-ranging uh, allowance that, uh, that you seem to be arguing for. Well, I don't know that I need a wide-ranging allowance with respect to this. What I need is elimination of the irrebuttable presumption that doesn't allow any consideration of whether money damages are adequate in a particular case. And, and here — it's very important to focus. The, four, the district judge didn't just say, 
I woke up this morning and I felt really good about the defendant and therefore I'm not granting an injunction. The district court here said I'm making specific findings of fact with regard to the adequacy of money damages to deal. Well, but he said other things, too. And one thing he said is I don't like business method patents very much. And so I'm not going to give an injunction here. Well, that, that's, that was proper or improper? That, that's, that's not precisely what he said, Mr. Chief Justice. What he said was the business method patents stand on a somewhat different footing because they're so there's a growing concern over the issuance of business method patents. Right. Is that an appropriate consideration to take into account in determining whether to grant an injunction or not? I, I think probably at the end of the day it wouldn't be. But the bottom line is that he did that in the context of analyzing the public interest consideration. Well, then he and went he on said and that said another in favor. Another consideration is that this patentee does not practice its patents. But, I mean, isn't that just saying he's, uh, you know, the, the guy in the garage and he's an inventor and the way he's going to market his discoveries is by getting some firm that basically speculates on patents. And, sure. and yet if he's denying that inventor, uh, uh, you know, the what he'd give to Bell Labs or whatever Bell Labs is these days. Uh, uh, that does — I should I know that, actually. But <laughs> — but, Mr. Chief Justice, I, I think you can it's, — it's not fair to pick apart each one of his findings and say, does that finding get an, enough or is that finding enough? The truth is the district court made a series of four findings that overlap, and one of which was obviously he doesn't, he doesn't practice this patent. He also doesn't effectively license he, — he, he's willing to license this patent to eBay. He, he's willing to license this patent to anybody under these circumstances. Well, and the, candidly, most of the licensing arrangements don't even exist in the — I'm sorry, Justice Kennedy. Well, I'm, I, I interrupted you. But uh, the, uh, the business process uh, point, you give away fairly quickly. I, I, I thought that was rather substantial. The whole point is, is that a business process uh, uh, patent is, is, is difficult to define and, and can be very — it can be very restrictive. I, I think in, in a proper case, and I don't think you do it under the, under the public interest analysis. I think you probably end up doing it under the balance of the hardships. But in any event, and, and, and what you you know, obviously this case is, is more complicated because. My, my so, concern is if you take that away, I, I don't know if you've got a lot left for the saying no injunction in this case. Well, I, I mean, there's plenty left because he doesn't practice this invention. He has no intention of practicing this invention beyond the receipt of money. Money damages are a completely adequate remedy under these particular circumstances, given, given especially the fact that if, if the infringement continues, remember, this is not a situation where he proposes to continue to infringe. We propose to work around it. But if the infringement continues, we're then subject to enhanced damages and all of the deterrent power that that has, plus the possibility, obviously, down the road that the district court could, on a Rule 54 motion now, come back and say, well, no, now I've decided that injunctive relief is warranted under these circumstances. Well, is it a concern that Congress didn't provide for compulsory licensing, which what this seems to have a very strong resemblance to. It says uh, eBay wants to do this, so they're going to have to pay for it, but the patentee can't stop them. It just has to, in effect, has to license them to do it. But, but we're not asking for a compulsory license because it is not our intention going forward to infringe this patent. We've made it very clear to the district court, and the district court recognizes that we not only intend to, but have in fact implemented a, a design around or a work around to this particular patent, and that's what we expect will happen. So we're not asking for the right to continue to infringe and a willingness to pay as we go. Our concern, and this does go to the business method patent, because it does go to the, to the uncertainty. The problem we have here is we don't know where the line's going to be drawn. That's why the district court said specifically, 
you know, there's going to be unending litigation on this because it's very difficult to define the meets and bounds of this particular patent, and we're going to have to fight over that. So that the traditional reason for injunctive relief, which is to bring peace, isn't available in this case. We're not going to have peace under these circumstances. And when you have that situation and you have the kind of uncertainty, not because of business method patents generally, that's, that's where I was, I think, probably giving up too much immediately. I don't think the fact of a business method patent is per se a problem, but I think analyzing the specific business method patent and its uncertainty is a legitimate consideration for the district court to take into account in deciding whether or not in a particular circumstance we are better off saying pay the plaintiff the money for the past injury, let's see how the workaround develops and take it into account, but without the well, sort of damage. Well, tell, tell me how, how this works. It seems to me that an injunctive hearing is, might be the cheapest, most effective way to, to sort out whether there's going to be a violation. Uh, you call the parties in and the, uh, they uh, indicate what, what they propose to do, and the judge says, well, this is within or it's without it. It's, it's much cheaper than a, a new lawsuit. Well, of course, the consequences of the, of, of the process are significantly different because obviously the remedies for, for contempt are significantly more draconian than, than just a finding of a, of a violation. But more, more important than that, well, Justice Kennedy. This, this gives you the advantage of coming in in advance. And I, I want, I, I want a ruling in advance that I'm not going to violate the injunction. You've got a cheap lawsuit. Well, I mean, the reality is the district court already looked at this and said that it, it, it is the district court's judgment that they're going to require full infringement trials. I mean, that was the finding he made with respect to the balance of hardships, and, and neither the Court of Appeals nor the, nor the respondent in this case has, has challenged that particular finding. So the reality is the district courts made the determination that that's not, that process is either not available or not practical in the context of this particular case, which, of course, goes back to why it's important to make sure that you look at each of these cases on their individual facts rather than across the board uh, on, a, on, these, on, on an irrebuttable presumption uh, basis. The, the additional point that I think it's important I at least spend a minute on, because the Court asked for us to deal with Continental Paper Bag, is that it, it does seem to me quite clear that at least at this stage the parties are pretty much in sync, that, that the Court need not revisit Continental Paper Bag. The holding in that case is actually almost a sort of quintessential situation where you have two participants in the market, one of whom would like to take advantage of a patent that will improve that participant's ability to produce a product. The patent holder is not ready yet to develop that product using that particular method, and therefore sues to stop his competitor from entering into that market. I mean, that's the classic kind of situation where you've, if it's, you know, where you, where you, you've got the potential infringer is looking at what's going on and making a decision and copying it and then trying to implement it. And the Court said under those circumstances, you get an injunction. But here, of course, we're dealing with a vastly different situation, as we, as we point out at, uh, in our brief, where the, where, uh, at page 9, where the District Court specifically found that not any of eBay's success is attributable to anything in the patents of the plaintiff in this case, and that nothing in the patents that were put forward by the plaintiff in this case provide any basis on which anyone could build a business model. So this is, to my mind, the antithesis of the situation in Continental Paper Bag. But in any event, the holding there is clearly not implicated here. It's been codified by Congress. There's no basis for the Court to reconsider it. To the extent that there is, is, is dicta in there that talks about the right to exclude, Justice Scalia, I think in general the right to exclude is one that you do, in fact, enforce with injunctive relief in many cases. 
But the question here is whether or not the Federal Circuit should have adopted a rule that says you, you enforce it in every case irrebuttably as to three of the four factors, and as to the fourth factor, you don't go any further than requiring the plaintiff to show that there's a, an imminent public health crisis. Under those circumstances, to me, the Court should reverse the Court of Appeals. And indeed, if there were ever a case in which the Court ought to uphold the District Court on, uh, under the abuse of discretion standard, it is this case. Why should we, if I can get back to one of the factors, why should we draw a distinction between the, the sole inventor who needs a patent speculation firm uh, uh, to market his discovery and, and somebody else? Why, why should he lose the leverage of the normal injunction uh, and have substituted for that a duel of experts over what a reasonable royalty should be? Because, I, the, because Congress didn't dictate that he gets that leverage in every situation. And, and it's quite possible that, the, that there are going to be a lot of situations, and the Solicitor General's brief identifies four of them, in which an inventor who doesn't plan to practice the invention engages in, in various kinds of licensing schemes that create all kinds of interrelationships among the way the patent's going to be developed. And I think all of those are perfectly legitimate and could easily justify injunctive relief in precisely the kind of case that you pose, Mr. Chief Justice. But that's not this case. Can I, maybe I don't understand what it means to practice the invention. If, if, I, does that, if, I, if I invent something, you know, a new, better way to make a car engine work, um, and I want to sell that to somebody, that's, you'd say that's not practicing the invention because I don't build cars? Right. But, again, you, you've licensed it, and there are certain rights that obviously arise out of the licensing. None of these factors is alone, I don't believe, sufficient to say you don't get injunctive relief. But I think what the district court said, and I think that this is why the court ought to affirm the district courts under, under an abuse of discretion standard, which has never been applied to this case, what the court should say is, look, in a, where, where you have no practicing of the invention by the inventor, where you have a complete willingness to license not only to the world, but also to eBay specifically, and where you've never sought preliminary injunctive relief, under all of those, and where, and where there's serious question about the lines to be drawn, there's no benefit to be had by, in the way of trying to eliminate the amount of litigation on an go- ongoing basis, under all of those circumstances, all of which the district court identified, then it's not appropriate to grant injunctive relief. We'll allow enhanced damages in the interim, and even the potential down the road, obviously, of, of, of an injunction to serve as enough of a deterrent to protect the right to exclude that the plaintiff has under the statute. Why, why does the fact that, that you're not practicing the invention make a difference? I mean, why, why should I be in better shape as far as getting an injunction is concerned if I produce an automobile engine and, and make some uh, undeterminate profit right. from the use of this particular invention in the engine? Then I would be, if I licensed it, with a royalty uh, based upon the number of sales of engines. I mean, they're both risking, you know, the same future use of the, of the device. Why, why does one situation justify an injunction more than the other? Yeah, I, think, I think I ought to modify it slightly, because it's not just simply that you don't practice the invention. It's that you're not in the market itself, because that's the, that's the Continental Paper Bag case. You know, in Continental Paper Bag, they don't want to practice the invention either, because they want to hold it back in order to be able effectively to use it. If they'd wanted to license it, that would have made sense, too. But this is not a competitor in the market. If they are, you know, it seems to me you have a much better claim to a need to occupy space. That's what the injunction is trying to say. 
This is my space. I want to occupy it. But if you choose not to occupy it, it's not to say that you abandon your right to an injunction, but that that ought to be a legitimate individualized consideration among other considerations. And by not occupying court. it, you mean including not licensing it to somebody else? Well, if you didn't license it, and actually we have no relevant licenses here, too, that would be another factor that ought to be — that ought to count in the mix. Again, it's not — I'm not looking for a presumption the other way, and I'm not looking for categorical rules that say that if, you, you're, if you're a non-performing entity that you don't get a license, or even if you're a troll, as that term gets bandied around, that you're never entitled to a, is, to a is, injunction. Is the troll the scary thing under the bridge, or is it a fishing technique? I, I <laughs> <laughs> for my clients, it's been the scary thing under the bridge. But <laughs> I mean, is that what the troll is? Yes, I believe that's the okay. — I think that's what, what it is, although you, maybe, maybe we should think of it more as orcs now that we have a new generation. But at this point, that troll is the word that gets, that gets used. Uh, if there are no further questions, I'd like to reserve the balance of my time, Your Honors. Thank you, Mr. Phillips. Uh, Mr. Minear, we'll hear from you. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The United States submits — that the right to a patent is an important matter, but it must be considered in the context of the remedies as well. And the United States further submits that the patentee's right to an injunction should be governed by the familiar four-factor test that this Court has applied in cases such as Weinberger versus Romero Barcelo. This Court's express endorsement of the four-factor test would provide disciplined guidance and a framework for the lower courts to evaluate whether or not a patent should issue in any particular case. The Court of Appeals in this case did not make express reference to the four-factor test. Nevertheless, it did identify the difficulties with the, the district court's decisions. You don't think, Mr. Uh, you don't think Judge Bryson forgot about the four-factor test, do you? Absolutely not. Sure. Fact, and, and he was just reflecting the reality that in a typical case, this is what happens. It seems to me all you, all you want us to do is edit his opinion and stick in these formulaic paragraph about there are four factors and here they are. Not exactly, Your Honor. We think that there is some legitimate confusion among the patent bar and in the community about whether or not this test issues nearly automatically or not. Certainly there are many amicus briefs on both sides. And we think it's useful for this Court to make clear that this is an exercise of equitable discretion. Now, Judge Bryson, I think, was aware of the four-factor test. In fact, both parties cited the four-factor test before the district court. He was also aware of the abuse of discretion standard. That's a well-established standard, and the parties cited that standard to the Federal Circuit in the course of briefing this case below. But what we think this Court can do is it can provide guidance on how those factors are applied in the patent context in this very important area. We think the Court of Appeals decision is correct. The judgment is correct. But we think that there is some benefit to this Court explaining why that is so. And I'd like to ask you about one factor in particular. What if by the time you get to the injunction stage, the the, uh, patent office has, uh, you know, rejected all of the uh, underlying claims in a preliminary way? It's not final. Can the district court take that into account in deciding not to issue an injunction? Well, I think, Your Honor, you're referring to the reexamination process that, in fact, is ongoing in this case. And we think merely that the patent and trademark offices and office action is not sufficient. In this case, if I can speak outside the record, there has been what is called a first office action and a second office action, but no final action by the PTO. But even if there was final action by the PTO, that would still be subject to review by an administrative body, the Board of Patent Appeals and Interferences, and there would be further judicial review. 
the PTO would not withdraw the patent, would not certify that it's invalid until the conclusion of the judicial process. So we think for that reason the district court should not act precipitously. It may have — the district court would have discretion to take that into account whether it should stay further proceedings pending the — Well, that's what struck me as odd here. Footnote 27 says that's a basis for staying the injunction. It seems to me if it's a basis for staying the injunction, it's a basis not to issue one in the first place. Well, it also might be a a basis in terms of how to structure the injunction. We simply meant to indicate in footnote 27 that the district court has discretion on remand to take these factors into account based on where the case is at that time. Uh, We're not taking a position one way or another what the court should do in this particular case. That is an exercise of discretion that's subject to review for abuse of discretion. But I would like to talk about the four individual factors in this case, because I think it provides helpful guidance in the resolution of the dispute before the court. As an initial matter, with regard to irreparable injury, patent infringement normally will result in irreparable injury because it denies the patent holder its statutory right to exclude others from practicing the invention. It's the type of right that is susceptible to irreparable injury because it — It denies the right subject to being — a damage remedy that's available. That's correct, but the difficulty here is the pragmatic question of whether the district court can determine whether damages are appropriate or not in a particular case. Is it always, is it always going to be irreparable injury if the patentee always gets fairly compensated? No, there, we certainly recognize there can be cases where there would well, not so be irreparable. Some cases when he gets fairly compensated and some he does not, why should you say it's always irreparable injury? Well, my, our position is not that it's always, but that it normally is irreparable injury. It usually will be. And there are certainly circumstances we can envision where it would not be irreparable is that, injury. It usually will be because usually damages are not an adequate remedy? Yes, that's correct. And the reason why damages are not uh, an adequate remedy is because, as Judge Easterbrook indicated, it's very difficult for the district court looking forward to determine what business opportunities are available to the, to the licensor or the practitioner in the face of the prospect of continuing infringement. And that is why, as Judge Easterbrook noted in the, the catheter case, the injunction harnesses the market to determine what the market value of that patent uh, is. It forces negotiation between the parties as compared to the court acting to, to try and develop a reasonable royalty based on a battle. You say going forward. I thought we were talking about damages for the past violation not damages for future violations which will continue. Are we talking about that, too? Yes, that's what about we're talking the, about. About the court effectively saying, uh, yeah, here, pay him and, and go on and skip away and continue violating. Well, why the district court? In this case, uh, they, they claim not to want to violate in the future. They're just talking about, you know, the, the past action should, uh, should, should be uh, uh, compensable by damages and not, they should not be subjected to a very threatening injunction. Yes, but in this case, the district court has awarded the damages for the past, past actions already. And the question is, how will we deal with the threat of continuing infringement? And the difficulty that the district court faces here is it has to, if it takes no action, as it's done now, it will at some later date have to go back and determine what those damages would be. Which, when they will be calculable. You're saying it's hard to calculate them into the future. You want the district court 
to calculate what the future damages will be and say, we think the damages will be this here, take your money, and you, God bless you, go continue to violate the patent. Absolutely not. We are suggesting what Justice Kennedy suggested, namely that the injunction proceedings provide an opportunity to determine whether or not the supposed workaround that eBay has will work or will not, and the injunction will be structured to allow it or not, depending on whether or not it's determined to be infringing. That allows the market to go forward with a determination, a certainty that uh, eBay will have that its workaround is either violative or it is not. But our view is that by issuing the injunction, the district court and the proceedings leading up to the injunction can determine whether or not this workaround is valid or not. Is, is there a classic case where the injunction should not be issued? Yes, there, I think there are. This is a four-factor test, and there are questions of balance of hardship and public interest. And certainly, equity should be cautious not to inflict unnecessary hardship on parties. In the case of a non-willful infringer, for instance, that has made uh, a good-faith investments that might be set aside by, the, by an injunction, there might be grounds in those circumstances not to issue an injunction. There's also a public interest inquiry as well. If the injunction would uh, threaten national security, public health and safety, undermine core aspects of commerce. Business processes? Well, business processes are not. The, th- the, the district court clearly erred here in saying that the mere debate about business process patents is a reason for withholding injunctions. That simply is not a sufficient view, reason in our mind for weighing against the general public interest in the enforceability of patents and the use of injunctions to make sure that those property rights are secure. I'm curious about your non-willful infringer. You're devaluing the value of a particular patent by denying the injunction simply because the people who infringed it uh, weren't willful, and I wonder why that makes sense. We're not suggesting that automatically that there is withhold with relief because of a non-willful infringement. We're simply drawing the character, the, the distinction between a case such as this where there is willful infringement and, in fact, the party has been found to have both had notice of the patent and also have known that it did not, did not have a reasonable basis for concluding it was not infringing or the patent was invalid. In those circumstances, the patentee takes on greater risk than the party that simply is not aware of the, uh, of the patent and, in a sense, uh, stepped over a property line without realizing that, in fact, it was there. This is, again, a four-factor test, and we believe all factors need to be considered Why in order to provide the bottom line, then? Send it back for your four-factor test, because there seems to be some uncertainty whether that was applied. We don't think that's appropriate, because, first of all, the, district, the Court of Appeals did identify the factors the district court relied on that weighed on, it thought weighed on eBay's side of the balance, and it properly rejected each one of those. But furthermore, we think that this Court's enunciation of the test and the application of the test, much as it did in the patent case of FAF versus Wells Electronics three years ago, could provide very useful guidance in terms of how this test applies in a specific concrete context. But the factors that the Court of Appeals relied on here and rejected, uh, found insufficient, were really quite right. First of all, there should not be an automatic distinction between a party that practices the patent and one that licenses it. They both There isn't an automatic distinction, but a person who licenses a patent and who is licensing a patent that probably won't be developed very much beyond what it is, it's fairly easy to term. I'll, I'll ask Mr. Waxman. Thank you, Your Honor. <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Muneer. Mr. Waxman? Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, I, I can anticipate at least one question. Let me just say at the outset that long 
perhaps centuries before Justice Story ever wrote his commentaries on equity, it has been firmly, unequivocally established that a final judgment, not we're not talking about an interlocutory order, but a final judgment of patent infringement yields an injunction in all but the very rare case. And that settled regime is not an exception to traditional equitable principles. It's an application of those principles. Equity, as this Court has reminded us over and over again, including in the Weinberger and the Amico cases, equity first takes account of the nature of both the right at stake and the violation. And because the only right that a patent provides under U.S. law is a limited-term right to exclude others from practicing the invention, infringement produces an injury that is both, A, irreparable by its nature, and, B, continuing in the nature of a continuing trespass to chattels. And under traditional equity principles, a showing of either of those things, either irreparable injury or a continuing harm, warrants an injunction in the owner's favor unless the offending party can marshal very strong equities otherwise. That is the settled rule. Now, no such showing could be made in this case. The jury found by clear and convincing evidence that eBay had willfully infringed the 265 patent, that it knew about it, and it had no good faith belief either that the patent was invalid or that it was not infringing. The jury was told that if it found either of those things, it could not find willfulness, and it found willfulness by clear and convincing evidence. We also know by now that the Patent Office has rejected all of the claims of the patent, the staff. The, what we know is that that is correct, Mr. Chief Justice, with the following clarification, that the office action, as Mr. Muneer has indicated, represents a, an initial judgment by a staff member in the office, and what, what is quite revealing, and, and it is not, doesn't represent even the PTO's final judgment in the case, but what is really revealing here is that reexamination is a process that was invoked by eBay, and as we point out in our brief, typically if a competitor is concerned or doubts the validity of a patent, it will invoke reexamination, ask the PTO to reexamine it when it first learns about it. eBay not only didn't invoke reexamination, it cited the 265 patent at least 24 times years before it then came to Merck Exchange and offered to buy it. Is that a factor that a district court could take into account in deciding whether to issue an injunction? I don't think the injunction question came up right now, today. Could the district court say, well, the patent office staff has rejected every claim of this patent, and I'm going to take that into account in deciding whether to uh, put eBay out of business? I think that the the case that the U.S. cites in its footnote is an example where reexamination processes are underway when the case is first filed or when it's pending in the district court. And the district judge certainly has the discretion to say, I don't want to get into a a fight here about separation of powers and Hayburn's case. Let's let the reexam proceed, and then we'll have a trial. In this case, 
eBay waited not only until it was sued and not only until it was found to have willfully infringed this patent, but in the middle of the appeals process, it then comes running in. And a rule that would allow a district judge now to give notice of that in denying an injunction would basically be a, an open invitation for everybody to go ahead and try and win at trial, go through the whole multi-year process. And if you don't, just put it into re-exam. This, although the re-examination is required to be, is required to proceed with, quote, special dispatch under the statute, this re-examination of the 265 patent has been almost three years in the patent office, and we still don't have a final action. So we think in the circumstances of this case, where the district judge had no reason to consider re-exam because eBay hadn't invoked re-exam at the time, it would be an abuse of discretion for the court to either refuse an injunction or stay it in light of the fact that it's now proceeding. But that's not an issue for this court. It wasn't an issue for the Court of Appeals because it wasn't part of the district judge's analysis of the requisite um, equitable factors. And what if I can just get back to the facts of this particular case and then talk about the law, the finding of eBay's willfulness in this case disables eBay from invoking the relative balance of harms. We certainly agree. Why? I mean, I think there are so many factors that could enter into it. Well, what I was going to ask was if you have a, a uh, patentee that does only license and moreover licenses only to people who, by and large, will not take that product and develop it further, then it's fairly easy to calculate damages. Now, couple that with a client or a patentee who also waits for a long time, waits till the invention is embedded in a series of other inventions, so that if, in fact, there's an injunction, what will happen is that the patentee will be able to extract far more than this particular invention is worth because the infringer would have to give up the entire invention. Just Couple that with a patent that, if you read it on page two of the red brief, reminds at least one person who read it, namely me, that if this could be patented, maybe A&P could patent their process for a supermarket. I, I mean, you'd worry about that as a judge. And couple that with all the other things that are here. Now, special case, why not? I've, I've been asked to couple so many things together, I may forget some of the coupling. Summer, but please I, remind, I, mean, I mean this in seriousness. Please remind me, because there is a very good answer in law and on the record. To the, the main point that I was trying to do is I was trying to take what I'd call the patent troll case. Okay. First of all, this is no patent troll. The founder of Merck Exchange really did invent this innovation. He really did, as the record clearly shows, spend years of effort trying to build the system himself. And he is no promiscuous licensor. He has he, — it has in, entered into licenses, which are all in the joint appendix, that are very specialized in terms. He was asked by eBay in 2000 to consider selling them. He offered to license them. The parties couldn't come to terms. And eBay then stole the technology. It willfully infringed it, knowing about it, having cited this 
as prior art having had one patent rejected as fully anticipated by the 265. And the common law and equitable principles have, are quite clear from Story, Pomeroy, all the way back that when you have, when you're talking about balancing private harms, which is what equity courts do, I'm not talking about the public interest, but I mean private harms. When you have an adjudicated willful infringer, I mean, the jury found that it had no good faith belief, either that it wasn't infringing or that the patent was invalid, you don't balance private harms. But let's take the case in which you don't have willfulness. It's not this case. Let's take the case of somebody who doesn't try and, quote, practice the patent. That's not this case. Let's take the case of somebody who's a garage inventor who decides the way to exploit the patent is to license it. Licenses, this, so far as I'm aware, this is the first case, the district court decision in this case, is the first case in the context of a permanent injunction, and I'll explain why preliminary injunctions that seek to preserve the status quo are different. This is the first permanent injunction case I'm aware of that has ever thought that exploiting the patent by licensing it to others to make use of would in somehow be costly or disable you from obtaining the relief that Section 283 and the and tradition provided. Section, two, Section 284, which is the damages provision, talks about remedies, remedies for infringement that has already occurred. The text of Section 283 says the other side keeps referring to may, may, may not shall. That's fine. But the purpose of it is to prevent. The operative word in 283 is to prevent. And unless there is an instance in which the patent has expired, the, light, the infringer is out of business and can show that it couldn't possibly infringe anymore, an injunction issues to prevent on that further violations. My question there really was, that was the heart of it, that I don't think there's a moral or even patent-related value attached to whether you practice it yourself or not. It's just that when you license it, it's easier, uh, and a lot of other things matter, well, here, but it's easier to calculate the damage. Now, at least in some subset of cases. So if you have a case where on the one hand it's easier to calculate the damage remedy, and at the same time you fear that to issue an injunction will produce a harm to the other side, way out of proportion to, in fact, the value that's being lost by infringing on the patent, then those are two things you'd put in the balance. That's so the fact that other things being equal. In the case of a non-willful infringer, a court No, willful, willful. Wouldn't matter willful or non-willful because if he's willful, the reason that he might be willful is he thinks that the patent he's holding him up. You know, the, the, there are 52 self-proclaimed intellectual property professors that filed a brief written by Professor Lemley in support of eBay in this case. Professor Lemley testified under oath to Congress that even though there are problems with patent controls, in the case of a willful infringer, the law equity doesn't balance private harms. But even if that were wrong, I acknowledge that in balancing, there may be cases in which you can show a vastly disproportionate harm. Okay? I mean, the other side has amicus briefs that come up with these hypothetical scenarios about, you know, one little aspect of a computer chip that has 30,000 components to it. Note A that all of those are hypothetical. 
And B, I'll explain why it's a problem of extremely limited circumstances. But, of course, co- equity courts can decide that, just as they can decide whether the, 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 quote, innocent patent holder is guilty of latches, unclean hands, estoppel, all of these other f- equitable considerations that aren't captured by this formulaic four-factor test, but that equity courts, including district courts sitting under, under 283, Consider, but this is not the case of some profligate licensor. This is somebody who has licensed with specific provisions. The other side says, well, there are no operative licenses, suggesting somehow that the auto trader license, which is one of our examples, is in fact invalid. That came up in their reply brief. It is not correct. It is absolutely true that eBay will not be — the 265 patent is included by that license, it relates to the field of use of auto sales. It provides specifically that eBay, that Merck Exchange cannot receive royalties unless it enforces this patent within the field of use. There is no doubt that, e- that Merck Exchange will not be able to start getting patent royalties from auto trader unless and until it obtains this objunction. And, Mr. Wack, for example — You mentioned the in, — in responding to the suggestion that we're dealing with the troll you should describe. What exactly is the invention here? The, the invention is a it's, — it's not a business method. It doesn't claim methods. It claims a system and apparatus — for an electric market for the sale of goods via a network. Electric, I mean, it's not like he invented the, you know, internal combustion engine or anything. It, it's very vague, I think, and this is one of the considerations well, the district court mentioned. The exact parameters of when it was going to be infringed and when it wasn't were amorphous. And so isn't that a factor the district court can take into account in deciding whether to issue an injunction? Because it's going to be hard to issue an injunction to define exactly when it's going to be violated and when it's not. Well, Mr. Chief Justice, if it turns out that it's too hard and, and, the in, and a specific injunction can't be written, Rule 65D requires that an injunction not issue. And, in fact, as we've cited in pages 17 and 18, and I think 19 of our brief, the Federal Circuit has, in fact, overruled injunctions that were insufficiently precise to satisfy Rule 65. But the claim of imprecision here is, look, I'm not a software developer, and I have reason to believe that neither is Your Honor, and I I can't (laughs) explain specifically what this claims. It's laid out very carefully. You may not be a software developer, but as I read the invention, it's displaying pictures of your wares on a computer network and, you know, picking which ones you want and buying them. I I might have been able to do that. Well, I'll say respectfully that that is not a fair characterization of the innovation here, the actual innovation. But let me just say, for purposes of this case, there is no challenge continuing to the validity of this patent. It was challenged before the district court and on appeal on grounds of an inadequate written description, et cetera, et cetera, and upheld. There was a Markman hearing in which the district court construed the patent, added certain claim limitation terms that eBay wanted and we thought were not fairly in it. But significantly, there was never, never a claim to the judge, and this is an issue for the judge under Section 112, Paragraph 2, of, that, of invalidity for indefiniteness. 
Well, but the Patent Office staff has rejected all the claims. I don't know on what grounds. It, the Patent Office, none of the claims have been rejected on indefinite grounds. That They have been rejected, as I understand it, certainly in this patent, for obviousness under prior art, which is all the same prior art that was presented to an Article III court here and that a jury entered a finding on. There are a host of questions that undoubtedly will be presented in the case, if it ever happens, in which a final Patent and Trademark Office on the validity of a patent contravenes something that an, a final judgment of an Article III court, but that's not this case. And we certainly agree with the United States that when, if the judgment is affirmed, the case will go back and the district court will then have to address a point it hasn't addressed yet, which is, is the, is the, the permanent injunction proposed by Merck Exchange adequate or inadequate, and how can it be made specific? And this supposed workaround, does it or doesn't it violate the terms of the injunction? I mean, the district judge actually found bad faith — this is page, I think, 71 of the petition appendix — of eBay in its conduct in the district court of proclaiming that for $8,000, its experts testified that for $8,000 they could work around or design around this problem and there wouldn't be an infringement. But they didn't do it. And they didn't — they certainly didn't appear to have done it in the Federal Circuit because their brief in the Federal Circuit never mentions it and the Federal Circuit opinion surely would have said they've designed around this problem and, uh, you know, therefore this, that, or the other. Even in this Court, eBay has said in its, in its opening brief at page 43, here there is a possibility that the infringer can develop a workaround. Mr. Well, Waxman, could you help me? Something I just realized I have no conception of here. What kind of — what do these injunctions say? Do they just say don't infringe patent 265 anymore, or do they give a list of things you cannot do and a list of articles you cannot make and so forth? You couldn't just say don't infringe anymore because Rule 65D requires specificity and precision. Ordinarily, what happens in these cases is there's, you know, there's usually been a claim, a detailed claim construction following a Markman hearing. There have been jury instructions. The jury instructions have to specifically describe to the jury on what basis it's to conclude the, who is it's right. It just occurs and, and, to me, and I frankly, with all the resources had, I feel kind of stupid not to have thought of it before, but it seems to me a great difference might turn on what exactly the injunction provided. Some injunctions must be, might be much more burdensome than some others. And they're not all fungible, that's certainly true. Certainly not. And the terms of an injunction are appealable, and the Federal Circuit has reviewed actual terms of in permanent injunctions and reversed a number of them and said, this is, this doesn't satisfy Rule 65 or doesn't meet other requirements. But in the, in the context of this case, it is so critical that the judgment be affirmed, not vacated, because this is a real inventor. This is somebody who really did try to put it in place. This is somebody who eBay approached and then, when they didn't buy it, appropriated the technology, and the validity and infringement are final. They aren't even challenged in this Court. And any suggestion that uncertainty exists on the facts of this case would dramatically destabilize settled law, licensing practices, 
and the investment-backed expectations of patent holders, large and small, the sole, you know, Hall of Fame inventors that are in the Cooper brief filed in support of us, and big integrated companies like GE and Johnson and Johnson that have also filed on our side. Yeah, These are this. patent portfolios. One, one, one short question: Is the draft of the injunction that you want in the record? It is in the Court of Appeals record, but not the Joint Appendix, but it certainly will have to be changed because the Court of Appeals invalidated the 176 patent, which the jury found had been infringed, and therefore it's, it will need to be revisited um, when the case goes back for the entry of an injunction. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Waxman. Uh, Mr. Phillips, you have six minutes remaining. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. I realize I'm the only thing standing between you and lunch, so I'll try to be brief at this point. Uh, Justice Stevens, with respect to the place in the record, this is in the Joint Appendix in the Court of Appeals at A6523. That's the proposed permanent injunction. And, and I won't purport to read the whole thing, but it starts off with, you know, anything directly or indirectly, and, and it goes on for three pages. It is, I think, fairly characterized as a very broad injunction. I think it's important, after Mr. Waxman's challenge to the conduct of eBay in this case, to, to, to recognize that willfulness in the patent context has a meaning different from willfulness in any other context. And it is recognized that we're talking about simply a failure to satisfy a duty to check out and find a, a lawyer's opinion uh, that a particular infringement has not taken place or that the patent is not valid. And when you do that, you, of course, incur the risk that you will also waive your attorney-client privilege. So there's a risk to it. And that's the willfulness that we're talking about here. With respect to the notion of stealing this patent, let's go back to what the district court specifically held at page 68 of the appendix, where the defendants maintained that their success did not arise from the use of anything contained in the plaintiff's patents, and the defendants argued that the patents offered no business or engineering guidance which the defendants could copy, and this Court agrees with that. That's not the kind of bad faith or willfulness. It's the reason why the Court didn't grant enhanced damages. It's the reason why the Court didn't grant attorney's fees in this particular case. And it doesn't provide a reason for simply jettisoning three out of the four factors that ought to be applied in the traditional, in the traditional test. And, Justice Breyer, you asked the question, what are you going to do with the situation where you have the embedded patent and you have the case like this one, where we're going along with our process and we've got our source code and we've done all of the hard work, and they go along and come up with some sort of more vague idea and show up at our doorstep and, one, claim that we've got to stop doing what we're doing, or worse, in other cases, we're going to find situations where it's embedded in a manufacturing process, Mr. Waxman says, well, in that situation, equity will step in. Not so under the Federal Circuit's approach, because that's a balance of the equities kind of a consideration. And that's irrebuttably presumed to favor the plaintiff under the Federal Circuit's approach. Mr. Chief Justice, I know, as well as you know, that Judge Bryson understands the four-factor test and the abuse of discretion standard. And what he did in this case was to go through each of the findings of the district court with respect to the use of the other of the licensing arrangements, the failure to commercialize this, not being in the business, and said, does any of these rise to the level of the kind of public interest concern that is the only legitimate consideration this court will use 
in deciding whether or not the district court can justify the, not granting an injunction in a particular case. Instead of what is clearly the traditional approach of equity, which is to say, look at the, fir- the primary two issues, and they're the flip side of the same thing, so I'll just treat it the one way. Are money damages adequate in the specific case? That's the fundamental question that equity asks. That's the fundamental question that the district court found to be satisfied in this case. Money damages will get the job done. The right to exclude will be adequately protected by enhanced damages and even potentially injunctive relief in the future. Beyond that, nothing more is required. That's the kind of decision that a district court who has sat in a five-week trial and has overseen this entire litigation is uniquely suited to make a judgment That judgment is entitled to respect on a classic abusive discretion standard. The Court of Appeals long ago jettisoned that approach, and the time has come for this Court to say, no, that's not what this Patent Act requires. The Patent Act says the right to exclude is important, but it's only protected by the principles of equity under Section 283. That wasn't given here. We urge you to reverse the Court of Appeals. There are no further questions. Thank you, Your Honors. Thank you, Counsel. The case is submitted.